Welcome to Season 3 of Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. If you're an American Jew, chances are you're going to vote for Joe Biden in the upcoming presidential election. Because since the 1930s, the overwhelming majority of Jews in the United States, around 70%, have consistently favored the Democrats over the Republicans. Now, depending on who you are, this might seem like the most natural thing in the world. Of course Jews vote for Democrats, you might say. But historically, Americans who've achieved the social status and high levels of income and education similar to Jews have tended to vote Republican. So the fact that such a convincing majority of Jews are in the Democratic camp is something of a mystery. In this episode, we explore that mystery by taking a look at the history of Jewish political affiliation in the United States, why Jews have become reliable Democratic supporters, and why it matters. Jewish engagement with American politics began in the earliest days of the United States, even before the Constitution was ratified. American Jews recognized that they were in a situation unlike that of any other Jewish community in history. This is Kenneth Wald, a professor of political science at the University of Florida. What was unique about the fledgling United States, he says, was that the Constitution didn't base citizenship on religion. This was the first place where Jews were granted citizenship on a par with everybody else. And that was quite revolutionary. But even more so, the Constitution itself was distinct in that it created a secular state. And by secular, I don't mean a state that was hostile to religion. I meant a state which simply did not incorporate religion in its official identity. Everywhere else Jews had lived, their religion had marked them as outsiders. In Europe, where the Catholic Church held sway, Jews were sometimes tolerated as tax collectors and moneylenders, and therefore necessary to make the economy work. But just as often they were persecuted as Christ killers, forced to live in ghettos, or expelled, as happened in England in 1290 and in Catholic Spain in 1492. Jews living in Muslim lands were generally treated less harshly and, in certain cases, as in Muslim Spain, rose to positions of prominence. But Muslim rulers never granted Jews full rights as equal citizens. That happened only in America. So Jews found something here that they'd never seen before. They had citizenship rights, which meant their rights were inherent. They, they did not depend on toleration as they did elsewhere, and they had no political disabilities at the national level. And so, as Wald says, Jews fell in love with the American system, a system premised on the revolutionary notion that all men were created equal. And they also, in time, developed a political culture that started from the recognition of the importance of the Constitution. 
and that their political priority was always to defend the system, which gave them rights, both religious and civil, that they didn't enjoy to the same degree anywhere else. For a long time in U.S. history, Jews were not bound to any particular political party. Instead, they supported candidates and parties that most strongly advocated the protection of individual rights and the separation of religion and government. And when that separation seemed threatened, Jews spoke out. For example, in the late 19th century, governors of some states proclaimed that celebrating the holiday of Thanksgiving meant worshiping at church. Beth Wenger, a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania, notes that American Jews openly opposed this proclamation. You would have rabbis, communal spokespeople coming out and publicly objecting to this. This is not the way to observe this American holiday. This should be kept apart from any particular religious affiliation because it belongs to all of us. Generally speaking, until the 1930s, American Jews continued to vote for whomever they thought had their best interests at heart. It's not surprising that Jews reacted to each party system based on how they felt it treated Jews. And if one party had a reputation as being more supportive of Jewish interests, Jews would tend to flock there. There were also periods, especially before the 1920s, when Jews were politically divided by class. For example, most German Jews, who'd come to the United States in the mid-19th century and quickly became established in the professions, tended to side with the Republican Party, which at the time was more liberal than the Democratic Party. People forget that the Democratic Party was, for many years, the party of the South, the party of slaveholders. And Republicans were generally more progressive in that period of time. Indeed, I would argue that was the case up until the late 1920s and early 30s. But Jewish support for Republicans was not monolithic. Depending on where Jews lived, they voted for candidates whose policies appeared to be good for Jews. So Jews voted across the political spectrum and sometimes not consistently. So you might vote one party for governor because you like that governor and you might uh, vote another party for mayor. Jews voted Socialists, they voted Democratic, they voted Republican. It began to shift in certain population centers before the 30s. A major turning point in American Jewish political affiliation came with the nomination of Al Smith as the Democratic candidate for president in 1928. Smith had been governor of New York, and if uh, you ever heard a recording of Al Smith, he did not sound like a high-status mainline Protestant. Of course, I am delighted, but not surprised by the final repeal of the 18th Amendment. I felt all along that when this matter was properly submitted to the rank and file of our people, they would readily see that it had no place in our Constitution. He sounded like the you know Irish Catholic kid from the streets of New York, who he was. And in general, he helped make the Democratic Party more open to other immigrants with similar cultures. The late 1920s was the height of prohibition, a policy championed by many of the mainline Protestants who ran the Republican Party. But Smith came out of a saloon culture, and like many of the immigrants who came to the United States after the Civil War, including Jews, he was not hostile to alcohol. And as Wald notes, Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, who were generally poor and lived in tenement slums, 
also liked that Smith had many Jewish advisors who promoted programs to help those in need. The Eastern European Jews who came over later, uh, a sizable proportion were working class factory workers, industrial workers and the like. And they were in real economic distress. And the Democrats seemed to believe that it was the job of the state, the government, uh, to address that distress, to remedy it. And Smith really was the first one who did that. And almost immediately, Jews began to shift in a democratic direction. The shift continued and intensified in the 1930s with the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Many American Jews were active on the socialist left, and Roosevelt's New Deal programs aimed at helping the working class and the poor attracted not only Democrats, but also socialists. Food is distributed to flood victims from outdoor kitchens and carloads of warm clothes and bedding are rushed to shivering refugees from WPA sewing rooms in many states. In emergency hospitals, thousands of lives are saved by Red Cross and volunteer nurses and doctors assisted by trained WPA workers. For hundreds of miles along the flood area, the WPA supplies the shock troops that hold the river within man-made walls. Levy workers transport material by hand. The American Labor Party endorsed Roosevelt and in time came to function almost as if it were an arm of the Democratic Party in some ways. And it led many socialists to the Roosevelt vote to the point where the, the, the Forverts, the, the socialist paper, endorsed Roosevelt, which would have been unheard of for the socialist to, paper to endorse the Democratic candidate. Jews supported Roosevelt in large numbers and more generally became staunch supporters of the Democratic Party. A Yiddish joke popular at the time captured the overwhelming Jewish support for FDR. The only part you have to understand is the word Welt means in, y in Yiddish and in German world. So the quote-unquote joke is Die Jeden haben drei Welten. The Jews have three worlds. Die Welt, this world. Jene Welt, the world to come. Und Roosevelt. Wald notes that even though the Democrats were still the party of segregation, Jews were willing to overlook that dark detail, especially since they came to see the Republicans as increasingly hostile to Jewish concerns and interests. <laughs> Support for Democrats remained strong throughout the next several decades, but began to soften during the late 1960s. As we covered in the episode on Black-Jewish relations from Season 2, at least some American Jewish leaders supported Great Society programs such as Affirmative Action, or at least saw them as an opportunity to focus on specifically Jewish interests, such as establishing Jewish day schools. But as Wald notes, overall, American Jews were split roughly 50-50 on affirmative action and other programs that afforded special entitlements to groups based on race and other designations. Jews did so because they, as classical liberals, supported equality of opportunity 
And they saw affirmative action as the different kind of equality by results, which seemed to them to violate, again, the principles of classic liberalism. Onese with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs didn't turn Jews away from the Democratic Party in large numbers, but it did weaken the coalition, including Jews and white Catholics, that had so staunchly supported FDR's New Deal legislation and had remained loyal to the Democrats ever since. Many people active in labor unions moved away from the Democratic Party. White Southerners who still had been in the party moved away from the Democratic Party. And Jews, in a sense, were part of that shift. But at the same time, it's important when we talk about Jews moving away from the Democratic Party to note that in most of the elections in that period at the national level, Jews still voted two to one Democratic over Republican. By the mid-1970s, a solid majority of American Jews still supported Democrats over Republicans, but that support was not as overwhelming as it had been. In the late 70s, some Jewish Republicans, who came to be known as neoconservatives, tried to woo American Jews to the Republican Party. It was composed of mostly Jewish intellectuals who, as uh, they said, had been, quote, mugged by reality. Uh, that is, these were people who'd been liberals. Indeed, some of them, like Irving Kristol, who was the godfather of this movement, had been a communist when he went to City University of New York in the, in the 20s. They looked at what had happened to the civil rights movement and others and to the apparent support for the Vietnamese communists among many of the young, and they just didn't like what they saw. We're not going to go back to the 19, early 1950s, to the Eisenhower era. One, one never goes back. The counterculture will, in a sense, to some degree, remain. It'll become stylized, it'll become commercialized, as it already has. It'll become co-opted, Hollywood will take it over, and it'll become a part of popular culture, and one hopes will be tamed and made to accommodate traditional American values. Crystal and other neoconservatives argued that the Republicans promoted economic policies that would benefit Jews, who by the late 70s and early 80s had long been members of the middle and upper middle class in the United States. And also they argued that the Republicans were more supportive of the military and the use of the military, which would be helpful to the state of Israel. So they made a very strong argument uh, that Jews should be voting Republican. But the neoconservative movement never succeeded in convincing anything close to a majority of American Jews to switch teams and join the Republican side. Whatever poll the neoconservative argument had was effectively dashed by the aftermath of the Watergate scandal, which cost the Republicans control of the House and Senate in the 1974 elections. The Republicans cast about for a way to regain power, and they found it in the writing of conservative journalist Kevin Phillips. Phillips was a, a gifted journalist who also understood numbers and pointed out that there were two constituencies that the Republican Party hadn't really addressed that could be brought into a democratic alliance. One was conservative Roman Catholics, who Phillips felt were uncomfortable with the more socially liberal democratic agenda. And the other constituency was white Southern evangelicals. These were Protestants who, again, had continued to vote democratic, mostly, certainly in state and local elections, but had clearly shown signs of unhappiness with the national party's embrace of civil rights. The influx of these new party loyalists changed the nature of the Republican Party, particularly because evangelicals were openly religious and argued that the United States was fundamentally a Judeo-Christian nation. Clearly, the Christian was a lot more important than the 
Judeo component. And they indicated that they wanted to change the Supreme Court, which in their view had been hostile to religion uh, during the 60s and 70s. And they wanted to allow a greater voice for religion in public policy and even encourage the state to allocate resources to religious groups, not to forbid them from receiving them. Evangelicals strongly supported Israel, but many Jews were alarmed by their influence in the Republican Party and by a history of anti-Semitism among some evangelical leaders. So Jews became gradually more and more concerned about this, and their classic liberalism really emerged again because they saw the American regime of religion and state threatened. The Republican Party, again, wanted to take steps under the influence of evangelicals that to Jews seemed to fundamentally threaten their status as full citizens with rights under the Constitution in a secular state. And so American Jews returned to the voting patterns common in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. That is, it went from being two to one Democratic to being three, or in some cases, four to one, largely in reaction to the mobilization of evangelical Protestants. Back in the 1950s, Jewish essayist Milton Himmelfarb remarked that, quote, Jews earn like Episcopalians, but vote like Puerto Ricans. He meant that Jews had the social characteristics, education, and high income of American Episcopalians who overwhelmingly voted for Republicans. But like Puerto Ricans, who at the time were generally less wealthy and less well-educated, Jews voted for Democrats. Himmelfarb's Rye observation is just as true today as it was in the 1950s. And the phenomenon remains just as mysterious. Americans with income and education levels similar to Jews tend to have conservative values and vote Republican. But as they have since the 1930s, most Jews today continue to support the Democrats. Theories abound as to why. Norman Podhoretz, who was editor of Commentary magazine when it transitioned from a mostly democratic to a mostly conservative publication, suggested that Jews supported Democrats because they had the delusion that Democrats had Jews' best interests at heart. Others speculate that the Jewish allegiance to the Democrats is somehow inherent in Jewish values, but Wenger, for one, sees little evidence to support that claim. Jewish values is a slippery term. You can't tie it back to the Bible. I'm always um, amazed when especially Jewish students in my classes will come in and say, Judaism teaches democracy. And I'll say, mm, how is that so? Judaism, if you're talking about the Torah, it's a theocracy. It's not a democracy. <laughs> um, and yes, you could pick out things. Yes, you should let your fi your fields lie fallow in a sabbatical year. But you can also find slavery and, and, and all sorts of things that are hardly democratic. The Jewish values argument is further undermined by the fact that Jews in other countries are not reliably on the left. For example, French Jews are by and large centrist, British Jews tend to be center-right, and Australian Jews are firmly on the right all of which suggests that it's the American system rather than so-called Jewish values that account for American Jews' devotion to the Democrats. As Wald notes, other countries where Jews live are not liberal democracies in the classic sense, 
That is, they don't separate religion from the national ethos. As a result, Jews in those countries don't, as a matter of course, seek to get rid of a religious definition of the state. They just want to be treated equally. But American Jews are different. I come back to the argument that American Jews are liberal Democrats because they are American Jews. And that means they value above all else maintaining their status as citizens with equal rights in a secular state. Because that position has become identified with the Democrats, and because the Republican Party has been perceived as wanting to lower the wall of separation between religion and state, Jews have remained anchored within the Democratic Party right up until today. Can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? Oh, beautiful for spacious skies. You probably won't be surprised to hear that the majority of American Jews did not support Donald Trump in 2016. Despite Trump's Jewish grandchildren and his promises to move the American embassy in Israel to Jerusalem and to pull the United States out of the Iran nuclear deal, both of which some American Jews supported, Jews voted roughly three to one for Hillary Clinton. Even prominent Jewish conservatives, such as William Kristol, the late Charles Krauthammer, and New York Times columnist Brett Stevens, did not support Trump. In fact, they were at the vanguard of the never-Trump movement. As Wald notes, Trump's language about illegal immigrants from Mexico and his initial hesitancy to reject the support of white supremacist figures such as David Duke gave Jews serious pause. For many Jews, it may start with Latinos and Hispanics, but if you're engaging in that kind of ethnocentric behavior, history has taught Jews that they're not far behind. And according to Wald, Jews also felt threatened by the people Trump surrounded himself with, in particular Steve Bannon, who at the time was Trump's campaign manager and had, as the director of the conservative website Breitbart, given a platform to the alt-right and to open racists and anti-Semites such as Richard Spencer. Today, according to the Jewish Electorate Institute, in the upcoming election, around 75% of Jews plan to vote for Joe Biden which, given Jewish support for Democrats since the 1930s, is not surprising. But given the partisan rancor of the past four years, for many voters, especially Democrats, this is not just another election. And Jews are no exception. In Wenger's view, the white supremacist march in Charlottesville in 2017, with its chance of Jews will not replace us, as well as the mass shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018, make the upcoming election one of special significance for Jews and their feelings about their place in America. I think it's brought out certain fears among Jews that they thought were behind them in ways that if you've read The Plot Against America, <laughs> Philip Roth's work, it's a little frightening. And I think it's brought out a sort of consciousness of Jews in really new and, I will say as an historian, interesting ways that we're going to be disentangling for quite a long time. Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Salo W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. Jen Richler is associate producer. 
If you enjoy the podcast, we hope you'll help support it by going to associationforjewishstudies.org forward slash donate. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization and features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org for more information on what we do, to learn about joining if you're a Jewish studies scholar, or to find out how to bring a Jewish studies scholar to your community. Thank you.